With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. WBZ, um, you are Jay talking. We're live midnight to five and it's Thanksgiving time now. Full on. The best thing about Thanksgiving, or one of the best things about Thanksgiving, is we get a visit from Richard Pickering and the folks at Plymouth Plantation. Tonight, Richard Pickering, Deputy Executive Director, is joined by Kate Sheehan, Associate Director of Public Relations and Marketing. Because Richard gets tired talking <laughs> so long. Thanks for coming, both of you. Let's see. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Oh, the microphones work. That's great. Happy Thanksgiving. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Now, uh, let's start from scratch because some folks don't know what Plymouth Plantation is, and some folks don't even know what Plymouth is. <laughs> so go ahead. Well, that's all about to change in 2020. I think everyone will know about Plymouth, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Um Plymouth Plantation is a living history museum where you can experience history in a brand new light in 2020. We are telling the stories of the Wampanoag people and the English colonists who created a new society in 1620, sometimes in collaboration, sometimes in conflict, which Richard can talk a little bit about, um, in in the early 1600s. And um, for about 50 years now, we've also worked really closely with the Native community to share the fascinating history and culture of the indigenous people of our region with our millions of visitors. Um, And we have four exhibits. The Wampanoag home site on historic Patuxet. We have the 17th century English village where... People are familiar with our pilgrims and uh, the first-person interpretation that they do there. And uh, the Plymouth Grist Mill, which is a working reproduction of our 1636 grist mill, which was operated by the pilgrims. And now you can get organic, fresh ground cornmeal and grist there. And then, of course, Mayflower, too. What is grist? That's That's a very good question. It is the product of... The taking the of the grind, the, the grind of the whole corn kernel, mm-hmm. um, and and the grist is what you get when you take those two French burr stones that we use, and and they uh, they rub together to create the meal. French they, what stones? Burr, B U H R. What's that? What are they? They are. The two stones that corn gets ground. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're from France. And, and yes, yes, our particular stones were were French stones from the 19th century. Yes. Okay. And to think of grist, just think grits and flip the letters at the end. Grist. Yeah. Okay. Gives you grits. What gives you grits? Has been going on new at Plymouth Plantation since we last spoke, Richard. Three, uh, three months, some three months ago. The last time that I was here. We had not yet cast the bell for Mayflower, and Mayflower was not yet back in the water at Mystic Seaport Museum. And the bell casting was one of the most moving experiences in my 30 years at the museum. You're going to have to recount that whole thing. When Mayflower 2 came over in 1957, 
the ship had a real 17th century bell made in 1633, so it wasn't responsible for it to be outside. So it's been inside, and the bell that replaced it on the ship was far too small. So it was decided with the restoration of the ship to cast a new bell. And our executive director, Ellie Donovan, found the world's only mobile bell foundry, the Verdon family in Ohio. So they came to Plymouth. The bell was designed by our designer, Rachel Perez, and a designer from the Verdon Bell Company. And on Labor Day weekend, on Saturday, the bell was cast. And one of the most moving elements was we reached out to veterans organizations like the Ancient and Honorable Artillery of Boston, Plymouth Veterans Organizations, because we were told that the 185-pound bronze bell could have medals introduced into it. So we asked veterans if they would contribute their ribbons and their decorations. And each man or woman, as they stepped up, told the story of why they picked that particular decoration. So inside the bell, there are decorations and medals from D-Day, Battle of the Bulge, Korean War, every element of the Vietnam War, Iraq and Afghanistan. And each person told the story and then put it into the bell for the melting. So the bell was poured at sunset. Verdon has such a good sense of drama that whenever they do this, the pouring is always against the sunset. So you have that bright flame and metal against the sky. It cools overnight and gets broken out the next day. So it was broken out in the morning, polished, and then it was rung for the first time in the afternoon. So they polished it right up quick, huh? Yeah. So it's it was further polished afterwards, but it was polished to get it to a place where it could be rung. Yeah. And the donors, a couple from Houston, Steve and Nancy Williams, were the first to ring it. They gave the leadership gift. And then some of the veterans rung it, and then people could get in a line and dozens of people took their chance to be the first ringing the bell. What's the leadership gift, the the main contribution? The, the bell cost a little more than $100,000. I was going to ask. I'm glad you told it's me. It's very I expensive. And they they gave the gift that enabled much of it to happen. That's and pretty the, cool. The remainder was funded by sponsors. The bell then went away, and it was sent to an engraver on Cape Cod, and inside the bell is engraved first rung in a free land September 1st, 2019. It's beautiful bell. So now it's on the ship. And since three, well, since you were here last three months ago, Mayflower was put in the water. It was in dry dock for its restoration. It got to the point where you could put it in the water and tighten up the seams. Correct, Kate? That is absolutely Any, correct. <laughs> yeah. Else? So the whole planking had been complete at that point. All of the caulking had been done to start that process of closing up the seams. And now it was time to get her in the water after three years, let the ship swell, and do the remainder of the work uh, while she was uh, launched in the water, which is happening right now. What happened to the original one? They chop it up for firewood, or what, what happened to it? It was sold for salvage. That. When Mayflower came over in 1620, she was already somewhere around 40 years old. And in the life of a wooden ship, that's very old. The journey had been hard on her. Uh, One of the main beams cracked. Uh, 
during an Atlantic storm when it returned to England in 1621. We don't know whether she returned to the wine trade because it had been going back and forth between France and England and the wine trade. But eventually, Master Jones's widow, uh, Josie, it was sold in 1623. And that's the only verbal description of the ship is the bill of sale Weird. of the wreck. Right. And so when we reproduced the ship, it was that single description in the bill of sale that was the substance of all of Mr. Baker's research to design the ship. Was it you that told me this, someone else, or did I dream or imagine it? Is there a website, some sort of interactive website where you can go during the time that Mayflower would have been sailing to find out where it, where in the Atlantic it would be at that time and what might have been going on there? Yes, there used to be um, part of our website had a microsite where you could track the ship. I'm not sure whether it's still up or whether it... I think it's still up, but we'll have to double check. We'll double check. check. And before the break, also you mentioned uh, you made an effort to locate exactly the location of Mayflower at this time. Yes, I, I wanted to know where what was going on today, 399 years ago, while Mayflower was in Provincetown Harbor. And this is a period, November 25th, 1619, when they're between two exploratory adventures. And they're debating, do we stay here on Cape Cod or do we keep looking? And so in a few days, they will send out the third exploration party, and they will eventually reach Plymouth and determine that's where to plant. But in November, at this point, they're off of Provincetown, and they still have not decided where to plant. So what time did they arrive in? Uh, they they spot land for the first time November 9th, November 1620. 9th. And then. Did they first say, this is too, we don't really like this, and head south a little bit and then come back? They were going to the Hudson River, but many mariners navigate toward Cape Cod and then go down along the coast because the Cape is so recognizable. But Master Jones had not been here before. No one knew how dangerous the New England waters around Cape Cod get in the winter time, And so when they try to go south, he's caught in Pollock Rip, and Mayflower is almost broken apart. And so it is decided they must remain in New England. Okay. Kate Sheehan, Associate Director, PR and Marketing. Richard Pickering, Deputy Executive Director. And one thing that I probably should get right to, because people probably want to know, are there any spots left in any of the incarnations of the Thanksgiving dinner at Plymouth Plantation? Yes. Oh, um, good. <clears throat> I'm surprised. The story of Thanksgiving dinner, we do five seatings, three on Thanksgiving Day and two on the day after, and we pretend it's still Thanksgiving. There are some seats available for the Friday at 4 o'clock seating. 4.30. 4.30. Yeah. Well, that's good, really, because you can go do your family obligation, and then still experience your thing. And that's the one where I'm always hoping your listeners will tell me and come up and introduce themselves because I host those five dinners. Okay. And in some years when I've come and have been on the show on Thanksgiving night, people are listening when they're they're driving home, oh, which good. is very cool. The buffet, uh, the four o'clock buffet on Thanksgiving Day, there are six available seats, I think. But other than that, the the reserved buffet is sold out. There is a walk-up buffet. Not this year. 
I think we're all sold out other than those six spots. So I'm a little confused. I know there are different, are there two types of Thanksgiving foods? And there are a multiple <laughs> way each of those is served. Yes. Well, like the, in the regular role, modern day Thanksgiving, there's the sit down version, then there's a buffet version, and there used to be a walk up buffet version. Buffet version, there's not. Then there's the old school hard scrabble version. Yeah. And that we're doing in the evenings that we call the Harvest Feast. Harvest Feast. And I was at the Harvest Feast tonight. I had not seen one in a while. And they really are fun that you're eating 17th century dinner. There are four or five of the living history educators enroll there and they take you through the dinner. They teach you music. They teach you jokes. They give you background on the food that you're eating. And people loved it tonight. I was on the catwalk looking down into the the big dining room and people were laughing and having a great time. And I know we have spaces available on the 29th and the 30th of November for really? the last Harvest Feast. No kidding. Yeah. And that that and I went to see it because the head of Plentiful Cafe had been away from us for a couple of months at another um, client. And when she came back, she came into my office and she said, Richard, I saw the Harvest Feast. It is the best Harvest Feast in years. She said, this cast is amazing. So I wanted to see them tonight and they were great. So what's the food like at the Harvest Feast? Uh, there's Compared to what we're used to. There's a turkey with sauce. There's a roasted chine of pork. There's stewed vegetables. Well, what's the stuff that is different? Some well, sort of... namely, you're not eating with a fork. So it's not the food so much, but the environment? Yes. Food too, but the environment for sure. What it's what a communal thing, table. What kind of thing did they have back then that we don't use, don't eat now? Some sort of gruel? Well, there's almost everything. <laughs> I don't mean to say gruel. Yeah. Some stuff, you know, <laughs> something that... Is just for real and might not be popular today. Uh, one of the things, not related to the Harvest Feast, but one of the things that are not popular, and we actually took it off the menu, were creamed onions. Don't get it. Love onions. Uh, people from outside New England just don't understand creamed onions. What about regular boiled onions? You probably don't have the menu memorized. No. All right. um, Mussels. Muscles, yeah. Muscles on both versions? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Because they would have had muscles. Yes. And we know that's one of the first things that they ate when they arrived at Provincetown was muscles and clams. Those were gettable for them, but if I understand it correctly, fish, which you might expect would be plentiful, was not because they brought the wrong sized fish hooks. Right. It, I, it I, took them a while to be able to, to do fishing on their own, that they were farmers and they were craftsmen. And so they hadn't fished in England. They no. just had no clue. And for some people, they'd never even seen the ocean before. So that they're getting on a ship and they may have seen a river. They may have seen a stream. Many of them have never seen the, the water before they decide to cross the Atlantic. Did they depend on the Wampanoags to show them how to fish? Is that how they learned? Or did they? We know that Tisquantum taught them how to go after eel and one of the early writers talks about what it was like watching Tisquantum get down into a riverbank and with his feet grab the eels from the mud because in the cold water, they tend to go into the mud and they're slow. And so he was able to toss them out with his feet. onto the bank. That's cool. Yeah. Do you, I'm, I'm guessing you don't serve eel? 
No, we don't serve but eel. That might be something for the future. For... <laughs> okay. And while you're there, especially if you're there on Black Friday, this stuff you can start your Christmas shopping, maybe get the whole thing done right there. Yeah. And not worry about the doorbuster sales at all these big irritating big box places. It, it's well, a, I love your gift shop. It's the best thing. What it's you, a great place to shop. We're going to be open December 2nd through the 23rd every day from 10 to 7 and then Christmas Eve will be open until noon. 10 to noon. Talk about some stuff you have. I'm going to actually look it up oh. while you're speaking. Kate, tell me about what you came up with, Kate. We're very excited <laughs> about our special Mayflower collection this year. We've got a couple of new items in it, and um, we think that very popular for stocking stuffers is going to be our new collaboration with the Cape Cod Nail Company. And you can get uh, eight beautiful Mayflower-inspired nail colors that will be just the absolute perfect thing for any Mayflower enthusiast in your life. Perfect stocking stuffer. All the names are Mayflower inspired and were come up with by Plymouth Plantation staff. Are the colors related to the ship at all? Oh, yeah. Oh, they are? Yeah, they are. You can choose from things like Into the Mystic. You can... But are the colors the same colors on the ship in any anywhere? N no, but inspired by. Uh, not the same names, but some are inspired by for sure. Okay. And what about... Something else. There's a lot of stuff there that's different. We have some amazing pottery um, that makes wonderful Christmas gifts. We've got, of course, an enormous selection of books um, that are, you know, historically inspired. And, and certainly, again, for, for everyone from a Mayflower enthusiast to children to those who are looking for um, native writings. We have mm -hmm. a wonderful native shop. Don't you have things that have been woodworked? Mm-hmm. We do in your in your in-house woodworking. We've got some lovely inlay boxes, uh, cutting our, boards. Our wax chandler also has done some beautiful candles for the shop, and for people who like to eat. And one of the things that's really popular is the Dutch waffle cookie, the yes. Stroop waffle. Yes, and people can get containers of Stroop waffles, and it's so popular that now McDonald's has a Stroop waffle McFlurry. It's kind of a thin, darkish waffle on either side and inside, in between. It's not caramel, kind of honey, kind of, how would you describe the, the filling? It's like a, it's a very thick syrup almost in the, in between. Is the, the gift shop, are the gift shop contents available online? They yes. are. Okay. If, if uh, anyone who wants to shop online can go to P-L-I-M-O-T-H dot com, the, the, uh, the museum's website is Plymouth.org, but for shopping, it's Plymouth.com. Nice. How about using the last minute before the break to talk about the bottle that christened the ship? That that was a very moving story because Ellie, in thinking about the experience of christening the ship, said, you know, champagne is just not right. And so we asked every state in the nation to contribute a bottle of water that would be melded into the bottle used to break on the ship. So there was water from Plymouth, England, from Brixham, England, where the ship was built, from a canal in Leiden where the pilgrims worshipped for 12 years, and then every state in the nation, it was all blended together. And so the entire nation and all the parts of the world related to the pilgrim story were in that bottle when it was broken by Harriet Cross, the British consul to New England. You folks down there are great at thinking up stuff like that. 
Is, do you have a genius that is the thinker-upper? Yeah, she's Earth. called Ellie Donovan, she's our the director. executive director. She is incredibly creative. Is Marty Mugar still involved down there? Yes, she, she is. Uh, she is one of our trustees, and I bet Marty is awake and listening to I us. I hope so. She loves you. Well, back at you, Marty. <laughs> Let's take a break. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I've been scooting along here because there's a lot to get to. It's WBZ. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Let's continue with Richard and Kate from Plymouth Plantation. Lots go, lot goes on there, including something called Mayflower 2020 and Homecoming, which are kind of related. Yeah, so we are so excited to bring Mayflower to home in 2020 in the spring after three years of restoration. I'm sure you're Listeners know from having heard from Richard earlier this year about the restoration, um, which began in earnest in November 2016. We just put the ship back in the water Labor Day weekend, excuse me, uh, September 7th um, of this year. And so she is in the final stages of that restoration. She's being uprigged right now, which means they're um, putting all the masts on and the shrouds and, um, you know, getting her ready for sailing. Um last kind of final details happening over the over the winter and we're going to bring her home to Massachusetts in May and the first major stop is going to be here in Boston for an event called Mayflower Sales 2020 it's going to be a 6-day free maritime festival that's going to happen at the Charlestown Navy Yard and you're going to see Mayflower sail alongside USS Constitution fully restored for the first time it's going to be really spectacular and six days, what goes on for six days? There'll be food, there'll be um, historical and, and educational programming, um, there'll be access to the ship every day that's free, it'll be a ticketed event, and those tickets will be available, I think, early in 2020, they're not not available yet, but it will be free, um, so you'll be able to tour the ship and see what this incredible restoration has meant um, for, for her. Um, it's going to be a really, really fun six days yeah. here in Boston. For, people, for folks who go over there, the USS Constitution Museum is there, and you'd be crazy not to visit that as well. I, now I know you're teaming up for the sale together, but are you kind of doing this whole thing in, in any more conjunction with the Constitution Museum? Yeah, the Constitution Museum, the National Park Service, the Navy, the Department of Defense, all of these organizations are working together for the six days. And we're all excited about the drama of watching Little Mayflower next to the USS Constitution because we think it will increase the poignancy of that story right. when you see how small that vessel is. Yeah, well, was. the Constitution is small. And then. But it's going to you, dwarf you, you Mayflower. See how really. How much bigger is the Constitution? Twice as big? Probably. Because it's not very big. But it's it's sizable in comparison to how long Mayflower. Is I mean, uh, Mayflower. About a hundred, about ninety-five yeah. feet in the keel. How many? Ninety-five feet in the keel. Ninety-five feet. Yeah, that's and one hundred and eighty ton. It would be buffeted. Yes, above it in the high seas. 
and one of the few adaptations that Mr. Baker made when he designed the reproduction Mayflower was that the tween deck where the passengers stayed was probably only about five feet tall originally, but he raised it uh, about 10 to 12 inches because he knew it was going to be visited very yep. heavily. So we look at it as cramped, but in reality, it would have yeah. been even more cramped. And all of these little rabbit warrens of, of cabins with 102 people down there. Really? Not then. I would have thought maybe they would just be hammocks like the Constitution. No, actually little rooms. <clears throat> we know that they attempted to build cabins either of canvas sheeting or planking. And we get that description because when one of the Billington boys fires off a gun between the decks and then starts playing with gunpowder near a fire, he could have blown up the vessel. In that description, we know that he was in his family's particular cabin mm. and the gunpowder had spilled out toward the fire. It is good that they did raise that deck because if when one visits the Constitution, there's the gun deck and below it, the birth deck. And if you go to the birth deck, invariably you whack your head on a rafter, mm -hmm. a beam, once, and you'll never do that again. Yes. It hurts like heck. <laughs> um, Richard, give me some little-known facts about, well, anything, little-known facts about Plymouth Plantation, Thanksgiving, Mayflower too. This is this is your wheelhouse, some baby. Of, some of the exciting things that have happened in the last couple of years because of the archaeology that's being done by UMass Boston Fisk Center for Archaeology is we are learning how the Native people and the English saw each other every day and that they were living so close that many people have said, why was there no invitation to the first Thanksgiving? Well, it's a very easy explanation. The native people were just on the other side of town. Yeah, no, you didn't need to write a letter. That what we are told in Mort's relation, the first pamphlet written by the pilgrims, is that on the day Massasoit brought all of his men and a and a treaty of mutual peace and alliance was formed. He says that night to Governor Carver, my wives and my women are about a half a mile away, and we'll be back in eight or nine days to plant on the other side of Town Brook. But the archaeology that has been done has shown from the very beginning those people were together day in and day out. And so that's changing the way we imagine these communities coming together face to face. And it's also raising questions about Tisquantum teaching the English how they planted corn because planting tobacco in Native culture is a male thing. Women do not touch that plant. Planting maize is a female thing. Men do not touch that. So how did Tisquantum teach the English how to plant corn, which is what the historical record says? Now that the archaeology is showing us that indeed the community was just on the other side of the brook, is it that Tisquantum is explaining, this is what you do, but they can actually look across and there are women doing the act of planting the corn. So he's interpreting for them what the women are actually doing. In the past, when the museum has represented that moment historically, what we have done is you we always show Tisquantum pointing and telling, but never touching. But because now, he can't, because, because he shouldn't. Right. But 
now we have this additional question of with women being that close, is it a, I'm telling you what to do, look over there, that he's not actually manipulating the grain at any point himself? Did men, in uh, the, not the colonists, the pilgrim men, did they all follow the rule that they don't touch the... No, the maize was not gendered for the English as it was for Native people. So men, women, adults, children, they all worked the corn. Because you had to. Yeah, they had to. All right. What, well, when I picture the first meeting, I picture Massasoit on a hill kind of over here, looking down as Tusquantum comes and meets with them to talk. And he just kind of wants to see, he watches to see if the pilgrims freak out (laughs) <laughs> Looked like everything went pretty well. How long was it before, and how long did they interact without uh, mentioning, hey, we would like you to fight on our side against another oh, that's, another tribe? Is that way down the road? Oh, that's conversation day one. Day is, one. Uh, when Massasoit and his men come to Plymouth, and they begin to articulate the five or six points of this treaty, one is... We, Look, we you will help. fight with us, and we will fight with you. Okay. And uh, we will help and, you. We'll show you how not to die. So from, and when you think about the fact that plague had swept through the Wampanoag homeland between 1616 and 1618 and had reduced the population by any, maybe upwards of 70%, and the plague stopped at Narragansett Bay. So the Narragansetts were untouched. They had thousands and thousands of men. The Wampanoag were reduced in great number by disease. By going to the English first, Massasoit gained all of that European war technology and knowledge. So bubonic plague, right? We do not know. Um, The Center for Disease Control in Atlanta is now thinking that it's possibly a blood disorder. Because I was thinking, if it were the plague is that plague, that would have had to come from a European, and who would have brought it prior to the pilgrims? The uh, Europeans had been coming to fish New England waters for a hundred years. Okay, so it's it's fishermen and traders that brought the infection unintentionally, but you see it sweeping from what's now Portland, Maine down along the coast all the way to what would become Providence, Rhode Island. And that's because it's a trade network. It's following the trade network. So Massasoit and the natives had interacted with Europeans for some time in a limited way. Yes. Traded with them? Traded with them. What is unusual about the Mayflower experience, they've never seen English women before. Uh And so they see women the elderly children coming off, and it is a completely different message to them. Right. Because for a Native person, if you intend conflict or assault, you remove your women, your elders, and children from any danger. Mm-hmm. And so by bringing them into the homeland, the English have no idea they're sending this nonverbal message of peace yeah. in Native eyes. That's a new, that's, so it's a new dynamic. Yes. Imagine being one, so. one of those very first... You know, uh, fisher persons that come over. Like, must talk about a different time, different feeling. Yes, come over on a small boat to fish here, and there are these very strange people can't communicate with. And vice versa. Uh, Nana Pashmut, this great Wampanoag historian, in conversation, he said, "Richard, you have to kind of flip the script because 
Native people are looking at the English people who are now in their homeland thinking, these people don't know the right way to do anything. No, they don't. Can you give me the fast version of that point to King Philip's War? Some, what, 50 years? Yes, and Nana Pashmet said to me, Richard, we always need to remember that in that autumn of 1621, when the first Thanksgiving happened, those people had no idea of the juggernaut that would start 10 years later. So if you think about the the human demographic of the first Thanksgiving, you have 48 English men, women, and children, and then at a minimum, Massasoit and his 90 men, but we believe other Native communities were there as well. So it could be several hundred Native people and 48 English people. In 1630, when Boston is established, within 12 years, there will be 18,000 to 25,000 people here. What was the big draw? Uh, To religious liberty of conscience. Because things were so difficult for the Puritans in England. But you go from that tiny little population where there's face-to-face interaction, where the English occupation of land is limited to the coast. But as the population grows and there's demand for farmland from all of those generations, that's when you begin to have the pressures because there's no longer any ability to adapt. So King Philip was a Massasoit son? He was Massasoit's younger son, uh, Wamsutta and Metacomet. Their names are changed. They go to the English court and ask for new names, because in the same way, biblically, Abram becomes Abraham, so Native people will change their names at key times of importance. And so there is a controversy as to how do you refer to them after that name change when they become Philip and Alexander? Would they have... It is doubtful they would have returned to the earlier names of Metacomet and Wamsutta. We as moderns project our values back and say, oh, as soon as they're in conflict, they would have gone back to those names. But Nana Pashmet said, no, they they would not have perceived those names as racial in any kind of origin. So I only have the vaguest notions of the tensions building over the course of 50 years from the arrival to King Philip's War. There was competition for food and space because the, there were more and more Europeans coming. But there must What else? Any, any key events? within there that caused what became the big war? and and Many people look to uh, a supposed murder that happens in 1675 of a Christian native, and his accused murderers are brought into the English court, and they are tried by the English, and the anger of native people at their people being brought into the English court is an example of of sub, subjugation and and troubles begin after the death of the of the accused murderers. Richard and Kate, who are from <laughs> I, I get I minimize it as we go from Plymouth <laughs> Plantation, which is a great place to go all year round, but it's super duper great during the holiday season, Thanksgiving, which we covered, but also the fun doesn't stop there. As a winter Christmassy kind of thing that goes on, right? Yeah, there's going to be a new program called A Spirited Winter Village that happens in the 17th century English village. And it's our take on a Christmas carol. But it's not telling the story of the three ghosts. It is the morning after the miracle. 
And so our guests will come and they will be with Scrooge and they will do all of the things taking the cheer that the Transform Scrooge distributes throughout the town. Well, who came up with that whole? I don't know which one of us came up with Somebody that. Somebody had to write this. Idea. Um, the first shot at the script was done by an intern of mine from Bridgewater State University, Alyssa Germain, wonderful theatrical talent. We told her our vision. She wrote a few scenes for it, and it's going to be a combination of scripted sequences and then people being able to wander in the village and go into people's homes, and they'll be cooking or doing a craft of some kind. And Fezziwig's Tavern will be set up so people can get um, warm refreshments before they go out in the cold. Performances start December 7th. They start at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. They start every 45 minutes until 7, and that will be on the weekends until the 21st. Was Fezziwig an actual person? Fezziwig is in the in A Christmas Carol. He's the man that Scrooge worked with as an apprentice who threw the wonderful party. So we're gonna we're gonna have Fezziwig's tavern. About three minutes to, to squeeze in <laughs> homecoming. Yes. Mayflower 2 is coming home to Plymouth on May 21st. So we want to welcome her and we want all of your listeners to come and welcome her just like in 1957, when we had about 25,000 people lining the shores in Plymouth, and uh, she will be ready for visitation in Plymouth on May 23rd, and those tickets are already on sale. They're already selling out, so you want to go to Plymouth.org and get your tickets. Um, if you aren't able to make the ship in Boston during Mayflower Sales 2020, the 14th through the 19th, then you want to come see us on May 22nd. All right. Are there other interesting things to do in Plymouth? Of course there are. What are they? Tons. There's so much to do in Plymouth. We have a great restaurant scene. I don't think I've seen the Plymouth Rock. That's insane. (laughs) I've been there, but I just didn't go by the rock. I took Joan Rivers to see Plymouth Rock. Yeah. And she looks at me, and then she looks back at the rock, and she goes, Richard, it's like Danny DeVito, a little bigger than you thought it would be. (laughs) And what else is down there? Great restaurants. There's a ton of historic tours you can do. Um, there are, you know, in, in season, not right now, but there's certainly whale watches and um, the Pilgrim Bell, which is a really fun excursion that um, Richard has sometimes been a part of narrating some experiences on that. Where's the best place to get breakfast down there? Uh, well, Ooh. a lot of people love that Water Street Cafe, which yes, is Water really Street's sweet. Great. Um, there are great places like Sukasa and the Tasty and. Um, Mayflower Brewing, of course, is a, a must-stop. Dirty Water Distillery. Distillery. There's some wineries, 1620 Winery and Plymouth Bay Winery. Good. Yeah. There are a few seats left for very few seatings of the Thanksgiving experiences down there. Richard, how, how do people get in touch with you if they want to scoop those up? Like right now, don't, don't even wait till tomorrow. Right, You can book them online, right? Again, uh, go to the website and book. And please, if your listeners book, intr- have themselves introduce themselves to me because I'd love to talk to them. Okay. And if you don't have a computer, like, uh, well, as many of you do not, as soon as you get up in the morning, call them up if, if this is of interest to you. And I, I would think it would be. I know for some people it's kind of a bucket list thing and I wouldn't put it off. Thanks a lot, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for making the trip in. And, you know, come in, you, you folks, two, three times a year. It's always great. Thank you.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.